Well, good morning, church. It's so, so good to be with you. As Christmas is upon us, we want to begin by wishing you a merry, merry Christmas. As we transition from the worship and the song and worship uh, before Advent and communion and even in our special music, uh, let's continue to pray as we turn to the Lord, as we worship Him in His Word. Can we pray? Father, we rejoice, we thank you and praise you for this wonderful time of the year in which we are reminded of the greatest gift that we've ever given, been given in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Father, as we continue our worship this morning, we pray that we would, you would direct our focus off of ourselves, off of our week, and onto you. We pray, Lord, in light of your word, that you would cause the Christmas story to be fresh in our minds as we consider and respond in worship, Lord, and share this message with, with all those uh, who need to hear it, Lord. So, uh, Father, as we read your word, what we know not teach us, what we have not give us, and who we are not in Christ, we ask that you make us, make us we, all, we ask it all in the mighty name of Jesus, amen. Uh, well, I, I had heard a story this past week of three sons uh, who uh, had grown up, they had gone off to college, and then they'd gone off onto very successful careers, and uh, they wanted to purchase their mother a Christmas gift, a gift that she wouldn't forget. She was now aging, and their father had passed on, but they couldn't be with their mother for Christmas, and so they actually got together. They were in the same town, and they began to talk with each other, and the first son he was very successful, very wealthy. He said, you know what I'm going to do for mom this Christmas? I'm going to buy her a new home. He says it's going to be a large home and it's going to be a beautiful home. Uh, the second son, he, he turned to the, the first son and said, well, if you're going to buy her a home, I'm going to buy her a, a beautiful theater, a home theater inside of that house, a place where she can watch movies or, or television. And then the third son, he, he, he turned to them and he said, you know, mom, she's, she's now starting to have trouble seeing. And so uh, she loves scripture. She loves God's word, but she can't read it herself anymore. And so he said, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to look for and I'm going to buy a parrot who can recite scripture. And so he went out and uh, he spent thousands and thousands of dollars and he found a parrot who could memorize scripture. I mean, it was amazing. Not only could this parrot memorize scripture, he spent thousands upon thousands of dollars so this parrot could, could memorize all of scripture to the point that you could, you could ask this parrot to quote both the, you could, you could give the chapter and the verse and the parrot would, would tell it to you back. And so um, um, the gifts were given to mom and mom, it was now time for her to write her thank you letters after the holidays had passed. And, and to the first son, she wrote this. She said, son, thank you for the home. It's large and it's beautiful, but son, I, I only live really in one room and it's too big for me to clean. But son, thanks for the gift anyways. Uh, the second son, she said, son, thank you so much for the beautiful theater that you've placed in my home. But son, by this time in my life, all my friends have really passed on. I'm hard of hearing and I'm nearly blind, but son, thanks for the thought anyways. And to the third son, she wrote this. She said, son, your gift was the most thoughtful out of everyone else. I just want us to tell you thank you. The chicken was delicious. <laughs> oh, man. That, that mother is a good example of someone who failed to fully appreciate the value and the worth of the Christmas gift that she had been given. 
And yet, how many of us, even in the church, find ourselves failing to fully value and appreciate the greatest gift that we've ever been given, the gift of the birth of our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ. As we continue to be reminded of the worth and value of the greatest gift that we've ever been given, we're going to continue through the Christmas story, and I'd like to invite you to the uh, Old Testament prophet of Isaiah. We're going to be in Isaiah chapter 9, and we're going to be looking at the first seven verses together. As you turn there in your Bibles, we've been retelling the Christmas story. We began by retelling the Christmas story from the perspective of the garden. If you recall in Genesis chapter 3, we talked about how the story of Christmas actually didn't begin in a manger. It began in a garden where the need for Christmas was first presented due to the temptation and fall of man into sin. And the promise of Christmas was first given. You know, the promise that from the seed of the woman would come one who would bruise the head or crush the head of the serpent, which would be fully realized in Jesus Christ, who at the cross, cross, he would defeat sin and death and Satan, and then three days later ratify his victory by being raised in newness of life. Next, we headed to the Psalms, and we took a look at the Christmas story from the perspective of Psalm 98. There are many messianic psalms that we could have looked at, but we were reminded that the Christmas story is about an invitation to sing to the King, to shout to the Savior, and to glorify alongside of nature the coming judge who's going to right every wrong and bring equity and justice to the earth. Today, we're going to take a look at the Christmas story from the prophet of Isaiah as we consider the promise of salvation and the announcement of the promise of a Savior. So would you stand? In honor of the reading of the word, Isaiah 9 will be in the first seven verses together. Nevertheless, the gloom will not be upon her who is distressed, as when at first he lightly esteemed the land of Zebulon, and the land of Naphtali. And afterward, more heavily oppressed her by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan in Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of the shadow of death, upon them a light has shined. You have multiplied the nation and increased its joy. They rejoice before you according to the joy of harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. For you have broken the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, as in the day of Midian. For every warrior's sandal from the noisy battle and garments rolled in blood will be used for burning and fuel of fire. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his, government, of his government and peace, there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. The word of the Lord, you all may be seated in the presence of God this morning. You know, as we continue through the Christmas story, we come to a familiar text. At least verses 6 to 7 are quite familiar to us. I believe Josh read it this morning, even during our Advent reading. And and we're familiar with verses 6 to 7 that speak of the promise of a Savior, the announcement of the birth of the Savior, and the character that he will have. 
But we're less familiar with the context of the promise of salvation that that comes out of. And so as we retell the Christmas story, I want to take some time to take a look at the Christmas story from the perspective of Isaiah 9 by considering the promise of salvation in verses 1 through 5 and the promise of a Savior announced in verses 6 to 7. Let's begin with the announcement and the promise of salvation. The promise of salvation that we're introduced to in verse 1 is first described as an end to gloom. It's described as a deliverance from the darkness of judgment. The first word that you see in verse 1 is the word nevertheless. This is a word that introduces us the promise of salvation and the end of gloom, and it's a welcome announcement. The word nevertheless is a word of contrast, and it reminds us that the promise of salvation in chapter 9 is preceded by the promise of judgment in chapter 8. You have to understand that when this promise of salvation comes to the nation of Israel through the prophet Isaiah, they are living in dark times. They are living in dark times because in chapter 8, you learned about the judgment and gloom that is coming their way. You see, the Assyrian armies are about to invade these northern tribes. You see, because of, 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 of God's divine discipline that he will execute over the nation, because of the judgment that will come through this instrument of judgment through the Assyrians, the Assyrians are coming, and the Assyrians were known for their wickedness as they were known for their brutality. And we get to see in the first word here that the promise of salvation comes in the context of the promise of judgment. Isn't it interesting to note, though, that throughout Scripture... Throughout redemption history, wherever there is a promise of judgment, aren't you thankful there's also a promise of salvation? Even in Genesis chapter 3, remember when the fall happened, Adam and Eve believed the word of the serpent over the word of the Lord and disobeyed, and you hear about the consequences, the promise of judgment through the curse, but there in chapter 3 verse 15, there's also the promise of salvation. That from the seed of the woman would come one who would crush the head of the serpent. And once again, there is a promise of judgment. The Assyrian armies are going to invade the land. They are going to come in and exile the people of God out of these northern tribes. But where there is a promise of judgment, there is also a promise of salvation. This is a reminder this morning that the darker the background, the brighter the light. The reason why the announcement of the promise of salvation is a welcome announcement is because of what precedes it in the promise of judgment of chapter 8. This is a principle that we can learn from. That the darker the background, the brighter the light. Whenever you and I have an opportunity to share the gospel of Jesus Christ, it's important for us not just to share the good news that shines brightly, but to share the, the good news in light of the bad news. Because the darker the background, the brighter the light. When you and I share our testimonies, we should take time to not just share the good news that we've received salvation and everlasting life, but talk about the bad news of where we were before Christ entered our lives. If I could give you an example of this without going into details and share my testimony quite quickly, being reminded of the principle, the darker the background, the brighter the light. I was raised in a family that valued God and his word. I came under the instruction of God's word very early in life, and I'm thankful for the investment that my parents made. And so very early on, I learned that I had a sin problem. 
At a very early age, I, I realized that my affections, attitudes, and actions uh, were bent towards rebellion and not obedience. And I understood at even a very early age that this sin problem separated me from God. Nevertheless, this is my but God moment. Nevertheless, the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ shined into my life. My brother shared with me the hope of salvation in Jesus, the ability to be forgiven of my sin, and the ability to get into heaven instead of being separated from God forever and ever. So when the, my Sunday school teacher in vacation Bible school uh, shared the gospel and gave the invitation. I came forward and I responded in faith. And can I tell you, the light of the gospel shines brightly against the dark backdrop of the promise of judgment on those of us who are deserving of his wrath and his judgment. Aren't you thankful for the good news? But the good news shines brightly against the backdrop of the bad news. And so the text begins and we get to see this announcement of salvation. Nevertheless, there will be an end of gloom. It tells us here, nevertheless, the gloom will not be upon her who is distressed. These are dark times in the nation of Israel, but the announcement, the promise, the prophecy is an encouragement to the faithful remnant of God among the unfaithful many among the nation of God. This is a reminder for them to look past the gloom, to look past the darkness and judgment, and to see the light of salvation on the other side. I don't know about you, but you take a look at our world, and uh, we live in a dark time. And when I say we live in a dark time, I mean in light of the values of our culture and the values of our world that stand antithetical to the will of God and to the word of God. And I can name a few, whether it be the sanctity of marriage that God has defined, marriage to be a lifelong relationship between a man and a woman, and you consider the values of our world, it's quite antithetical to it. When you consider the sanctity of life from the womb to the tomb, you, you see the value system of our world that stands antithetical to it. As believers and as Christians, we don't deny the reality of darkness, but we have the opportunity to look past the darkness, to look past the gloom, to the coming glory of Jesus Christ, who's coming back as a conquering king to right every wrong and bring justice and equity to a world that is in desperate need of it. Yes, they may be dark times. Yes, there may be gloom, but we live in light of the second coming of Jesus Christ. And this is the promise. This is the announcement they are given. Nevertheless, it says, the gloom will not be upon her who is distressed. Who is this who is distressed? It's speaking of the children of Israel. It's speaking of those who are in a state of despair. And the reason they are in a state of despair, because of the judgment that is coming, it says, as when at first he lightly esteemed the land of Zebulon and the land of Naphtali, judgment would come through the Assyrian armies as they would invade, uh, Naf um, they would invade Zebulon and Naphtali. As they would invade by means of, it tells us here, by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan in Galilee of the Gentiles. Here's the announcement here. In the present reality of things, there is a state of gloom. 
There is a darkness of judgment that covers the land and covers the people because of the invasion of the Assyrian armies. But the encouragement is, here's the good news, the glory of God is coming. Look past the gloom to the glory of God that will ultimately be fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus Christ. You know how I know that? Because if you go to the Gospel of Matthew... And you head over to Matthew chapter 4. We learn that as Jesus begins his ministry, after John the Baptist is put into prison, we learn something happens. Jesus begins his ministry. His ministry begins to explode. And the place where he begins to minister is Zebulon and Naphtali. The place where he begins to minister is by the way of the sea, is beyond the Jordan, is in Galilee of the Gentiles. Let me read it to you because it's so incredibly significant. Gloom is in the previous days. Glory is in the latter days. Let me read it to you. It says here in Matthew 4, 12, it says, Now when Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he departed to Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he came and dwelt in Capernaum, which is by the sea, in the regions of Zebulon and Naphtali, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, the land of Zebulon and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who sat in darkness have seen a great light, and upon those who sat in the region and shadow of death, light has dawned. From that time, Jesus preached, Jesus began to preach and say, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. In the prior days, gloom, in the, in the latter days, glory, fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus Christ. The announcement of salvation and the promise of salvation is deliverance from gloom and end to despair. There was despair, but there will soon be rejoicing. There was darkness, but there will soon be light, and it's realized in the person and work of Jesus Christ. So first we see this, this promise of salvation is described uh, here as an end to gloom and an end to the darkness of judgment. Secondly, um, the promise of salvation is described as a light, as a light that eclipses the darkness. It's described as a light in verse 2 that eclipses the darkness. Verse 2, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of the shadow of death, upon them a light has shined. These are people who are described as, as walking in darkness. The land is overshadowed by the darkness of judgment and the gloom and despair of the Assyrian armies who have invaded the land and exiled the nation. But it tells us here the good news is that the light of deliverance will eclipse the darkness. The darkness may be strong. The gloom may be overwhelming, but the light is more powerful than the darkness because it eclipses it. It's interesting to note, if I can just uh, make this observation here, when you take a look at verses 1 through 3, the prophecy is written as if it's already taken place. There are past tense uh, verbs being read here, and the reason for that is that the prophecy is so sure that the prophet writes as if it has already come to pass. 
That reminds us something about the hope that we have in God and the promises that he gives us, especially the promise of salvation and the promise of of the Savior. The hope that we have is not wishful thinking. It's about confident expectation. As Christians, as believers, we can come boldly before the throne of God with confident expectation that the same God who makes promises is the same God who will keep his promises. We don't have to walk around and, 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 and talk about wishful thinking. Like I hope it doesn't rain today or I hope it rains today. There are some folks who talk about their salvation very flippantly like that. Oh, I hope I get into heaven. I hope my good deeds will be enough to reach me to heaven. I hope my religious activity or my religion will get me into heaven. The believer and the Christian doesn't have a hope of wishful thinking, but has a hope of confident expectation. I know I'm getting into heaven. I know I'm going to spend eternity with God and his people forever and ever, not on the basis of my deeds, but based on the finished work of Christ on the cross. We have a hope in the salvation that God has promised each one of us. And the hope is this, that the light will eclipse the darkness. They're walking in darkness because of the judgment that overshadows them and the land, but glory is a coming. Jesus ultimately is the fulfillment of this. That's why verses 6 to 7 point to him. In John chapter 8, verse 12, do you remember what Jesus said about himself? He said, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Jesus is the light that eclipses the darkness of judgment and gloom. What a wonderful gospel that we have. What great good news that we have is that Jesus eclipses the darkness. This is good news for anyone who finds themselves walking around, fumbling around in the darkness, trying to take hold of this philosophy or that religion. Trying to look for truth, thinking that, oh, my good deeds will get into heaven. And you're groping around in the darkness. And Jesus says, I am the light. Follow me. I lead to the way of salvation and everlasting life. Stop groping around in the darkness. I am the light that eclipses the darkness. And I will provide forgiveness, everlasting life, and eternal hope in my name. Put your hope in Jesus. He is the light that eclipses the darkness. So this is a salvation that is described as a light that eclipses the darkness. And thirdly, this is a light, or this is a, this is a promise of salvation that results in an increase of joy. In verses 3 to 5, we're reminded that where there is salvation, there is also rejoicing. Did you know, church, that there's many in this room, as far as I know, who know Jesus as their Savior and Lord? who have received salvation in Jesus as their Savior and Lord. Jesus didn't come to make bad people good. He he came to take dead people and bring new life. And there's a lot of people who have received new life in Jesus Christ. And can I tell you, we have a reason this morning to rejoice. If there's anybody who's celebrating, if there's anyone who's having a good time, it should be among the redeemed. Because we have received salvation, we have a reason to Rejoice. The rejoicing is described beginning in verse 3. It tells us, it says, You have multiplied the nation and increased its joy. You have to understand this prophecy is given during a dark time in Israel's history. There are very few among the faithful remnant of God. 
And the few among the faithful remnant of God are among the many of unfaithful among the nation. But what this tells us here is that the few uh, who are faithful among the remnant of God is going to grow and it's going to increase. Can I tell you where there is growth, there is a reason to rejoice. I don't know about you, but when you announce the birth of a child or you announce the addition of a spouse to a family, uh, most of the time it's a reason for rejoicing, right? It's a celebration. Where there is growth, there should also be rejoicing. And we learn uh, that Jesus did not just come for the Jew, he also came for the Gentile. That's why Paul said in Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe, for the Jew first and also the Greek. And we learn that through Jesus Christ, the nation will grow. You know the, the vision of heaven is described in Revelation chapter 7. Let me take you there real fast. Revelation chapter 7 verse 9 says this, After these things I looked and behold a great multitude which no one could number. Of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes. So not just the, the redeemed among the children of Israel, but the redeemed among all nations, with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Where there is growth, there is great rejoicing. Uh, we continue to read, it says, they rejoice, but it tells us specifically how they rejoice before you. You know, we don't just come together and sing songs because it makes us feel good. <laughs> we don't just come together because we want to get into the Christmas spirit, but we come to rejoice in the giving of the greatest gift that's ever been given in the person and work of Jesus Christ. We rejoice before him. We give him our praise. We lift up honor and glory to his name. We rejoice in him. What kind of rejoicing do we rejoice with? It tells us they, rejo they rejoice before you according to the joy of the harvest. Uh, the children of Israel, they would labor in the fields for months and months and months. But when harvest time came, they would harvest that which they had they would eat, they would drink, and they would celebrate the harvest is here. It's a time of rejoicing. Now, let me bring it into context that you and I can understand, because I don't know about you, but I'm not much of a farmer, and I'm not much of a gardener at that, you know. The closest I've come to farming or gardening is one year in college, I helped out um, harvest some pumpkins on a farm one year. I mean, that's the closest I've ever come, but, but I know friends who have been farmers, and I know friends who have been gardeners. I can tell you this, I grew up in a small rural town in southwest Arizona, and there there were a lot of farmers, and can I tell you, when harvest time came, even those who were among my peers that I was growing up with, they were nowhere to be found because they were busy harvesting, and after the harvest comes the celebration because the harvest season has come. But not just that, I don't know about you, but I'm sure there are some gardeners in the room 
And uh, as of recent, not only have I seen the rejoicing of some of you gardeners, but I have also rejoiced in the bounty of your harvest because there are some people who have come to me as of late and said, take a look at the size of these tomatoes and cucumbers. I've got too many carrots to count. I've got to share my bounty. And there's a lot of rejoicing going around in light of the harvest that you've received as a gardener. The Bible says here, in light of the rejoicing of the harvest, That is the kind of rejoicing that should be present in light of the salvation that you and I have received. (laughs) Not just rejoicing around harvest, because where there is harvest, there there is rejoicing. Where there is salvation, there is rejoicing. But where there is victory and the bounty is divided, there is also the same kind of rejoicing. The text continues, verse 3, and says, As men rejoice when they divide the spoil. And so this is talking about a victory that's been won. And they take the plunder and they divide it among the people and they rejoice in the victory and the plunder that has been won. The same kind of rejoicing should be present among the redeemed because of the salvation that's been given to us by our God from gloom to glory. From darkness to light, from sorrow and despair to rejoicing, we were dead, but now we're alive. We were blind, but now we see. Church, we have a reason to rejoice. We should be so full of joy that our neighbors and our coworkers look at us and say, there's something wrong with that guy or gal because they're full of the joy of the Lord. As we continue to read in verse 4, it speaks of the reason we have a reason to rejoice is because God is the one who, who, who sets the captive free. Where there is freedom, there is rejoicing. The yoke of bondage has been cut and the captive has been delivered. This is speaking of the salvation that the Messiah brings. Verse 4 says, for you have broken the yoke. That's why there's rejoicing. You have broken the yoke of his burden. This burden is described as attached to a yoke. It it pictures a a, a piece of wood uh, being pressed down on the head of a captor, of a captive individual who is being oppressed. And, And what this tells us here is there is rejoicing because the captive is delivered. You have broken the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor as in the day of Midian. What's he talking about there? He's talking about the days of the judges. You remember Gideon, one of the judges? He was an unlikely hero. He was a man who really didn't want to step out in faith, but God, you know, he's the kind of God who brings him along anyways. And although he's an unlikely hero, God demonstrates that he is God. Gideon is not, and neither are the armies. And in chapter 7 of Judges, we learn that the Midianites are oppressing the, the children of Israel. And, and so um, Gideon goes out with 32,000 men. 32,000, and God says, there's too many. We're going to dwindle down the number, and eventually it gets down to 300. And God says, here's the reason, so that you all don't think that you are the reason we won the battle, so that you know the battle belongs to the Lord. And in Judges chapter 7, we read this in verse 19. So Gideon and the hundred men who were with him came to the outpost of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch, just as they had posted the watch. And they blew the trumpets and broke the pitchers that were in their hand. 300 among thousands and thousands of their enemies. Then the three companies blew the trumpets, broke the pitchers. They held the torches in their left hands and the trumpets in their right hands for blowing. And they cried, the sword of the Lord and of Gideon. I mean, just a, a few hundred 
in the midst of thousands. And the text says, and every man stood in his place all around the camp, and the whole army ran and cried out and fled. You talk about a reason for rejoicing. They can say the reason we have been delivered from the oppressive hand of the Midianites, from the yoke of bondage, is not because we are good strategists. It's not because of our power, but because of the Lord. And they had a reason to rejoice, and we have a reason to rejoice as well. Did you know the salvation you and I have been given is not been given to us because of our good deeds or we're anything special, but because of the victory that's been won by Jesus Christ, our Savior and our Lord. And so we rejoice in him. Where there is freedom, where the captive is set free, there is rejoicing. We were once held captive to sin. We were once held captive to the desires of our hearts. Whether you realize it or not, when you're born into this world, you have an inclination towards rebellion and not obedience. But thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ, the captive has been set free. Jesus defeated sin, death, and Satan on the cross and ratified his victory three days later, rising in newness of life. Church, we have a reason to rejoice. Where there is freedom, there is rejoicing. And then finally, the reason we have a reason to rejoice in verse 5 is because of the peace that this salvation results in. In verse 5, what we get to read about is the military materials are burned and are no longer needed. The text tells us, speaks of these military materials. For every warrior's sandal from the noisy battle and the garments rolled in blood will be used for burning and fuel of fire. In other words, we don't need weapons of warfare anymore. Why? Because in a moment we're going to learn through the Savior, the Prince of Peace has come. <laughs> he has conquered all of his enemies and now there is peace as he ushers in his kingdom. If you go back to Isaiah chapter 2, verse 4, we read this about the salvation that's found in uh, our Savior, uh, Jesus Christ. It says this, He shall judge between the nations and rebuke many people. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Listen, you no longer need weapons of warfare. You've got plowshares and now pruning hooks. What do you need your sword for anymore? There's peace. War is no more. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. In these first five verses, church, we are introduced to the context of the announcement of the promise of a Savior, and we're first given the promise of salvation. How is this promise of salvation described? It's described as an end to gloom. There was darkness, now there's light. There was despair, and now there is rejoicing. It's described as a light that eclipses the darkness, fully, fully found in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And it's a good news that brings rejoicing. Where there is salvation, there is always rejoicing. This Christmas, as we retell the Christmas story, you and I are invited to place our hope in the promise of salvation. That through a Savior, there will come an end to gloom and the darkness of judgment. Through a Savior, 
through salvation in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, the light will eclipse the darkness. And through this Savior, because of salvation, there will be an increase in rejoicing. This morning, what's our takeaway? The, the first thing is this. Place your trust in the promises of God by placing your trust in the word of God. Christmas time is not a time to neglect the word. It's a time to lean in closer to it. Christmas time is not a time to simply sing the carols and forget what we're singing because we're so familiar with them, but to reflect on the lyrics and make sure they reflect the authority of the word of God and be reminded of what this Christmas season is all about. Place your trust and your hope in the authority of the word of God and there you will find your hope in the promises of God for salvation. The second thing I'd encourage us to do in light of this promise of hope of salvation is to look past the gloom towards the future glory of God that is fully realized in the person and work of Jesus Christ. I said it earlier, I'll say it again. The means by which we do that is not by denying the present reality of darkness that we face. If I can take you back to Romans chapter 118, we're reminded that it's not that judgment is coming, and the question is, when will judgment come? It's the question of how far into judgment are we? Romans chapter 1 verse 18 says, For the wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. In Verses 18 to 32, you see, read about a downward spiral in which, the, which man is given over to the desires of their heart. And in the final verse, verse 32, you see the result of it. It says, who knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death, so they know it's against God and they know there are consequences. It says, not only do they do the same, but they also approve of those who practice them. So not only do they know what God's word says, they do it anyways, and then they are allies of sin. Listen, we live in dark times, no reason to deny it, but look past the gloom to the future glory of God and the return of Jesus Christ. Can I tell you, we live in the most blessed time in all of redemptive history. You and I live between the first and the second coming of Jesus Christ. Did you know that? We are living, I don't know if you know this, in the last days. People are like, are we living in the last days? Yes, because the last days refer to the timing between the first coming and the second coming of Jesus Christ. The question is, how close are we to the last of the last days? Did you know, church, the next event on the prophetic calendar is the rapture of the church? And we eagerly await Wait to meet Jesus in the air because after the rapture, we're going to see a seven-year tribulation. And after that tribulation, the second coming of Jesus Christ who's going to set up his millennial kingdom on the earth and he's going to rule and reign, executing justice and equity on the earth. Look past the gloom to the glory to come. Live in light of eternity. We don't deny the present gloom. We live in light of the glory that is to come. We are blessed beyond measure. And then thirdly, if I could share this, it would be this. Receive the joy of Christmas and rejoice in the God of your salvation. 
If you have been granted salvation, you've trusted in Jesus as your Savior and Lord, take time to tell him thank you. Christmas is a reminder of the many blessings that we have been given. Sometimes we lose sight of the value and the worth of the greatest gift that we've ever been given because it's so familiar to us. Because it's cute when the kids put on a, on a musical and we're very proud of them. And that's a great thing. But are we reminded of the message behind all of the carols and the musicals and the performances and the lights and the Christmas trees? You and I have been granted salvation and we have a reason to rejoice. And if we are not rejoicing, have we lost sight of the promise of God of the salvation that we have received? Is the light growing so dim because you've forgotten how far you are away from God that he has brought you back? Take time to recall the gospel. Take time to recall your testimony and rejoice because of the salvation you and I have been given. So first, we, we, we begin. We get to see the promise of salvation. The Christmas story is about the promise of Christmas, which is about the promise of salvation. But the promise of salvation is realized in the announcement of a Savior. Let's go to the text that we are so familiar with in verses 6 to 7 as we consider the announcement of the birth of this child. Uh, it tells us, For unto us a, a child is born. Unto us a son is given, and his government will be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. In the first two lines, we're introduced to the humanity and the deity of the Savior who will be born. The announcement is first an announcement of his humanity unto us. Now, this is speaking directly to the children of Israel. But we know that not only are we recipients of blessings through Christ, if you're a Jew but a Gentile alike, because salvation is realized in, with faith in Jesus as your Savior and Lord. Unto us a child is born. We're reminded that this it follows the announcement of the birth of a child in Genesis 3.15. From the seed of the woman would come an offspring who would crush the head of the serpent. Now it says, for unto us a child is born. Who is the one who will bring an end to gloom? Who is the one who will shine brightly the light? Who is the one who will bring rejoicing to the redeemed? It is the one who is born unto us. It is a child that is born. Uh, we're reminded that Jesus, when he was born, he was born of the Virgin Mary, fully man and fully God. So we see, unto us a child is born, unto us, secondly, his deity, a son is given. Jesus, when he was born, we know that he was not just fully man, but he was fully God. Deity wrapped in humanity. John 1.1 1, 1 tells us, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And then in verse 14, the word dwelt among us and, and we beheld his glory. The glory of the only begotten, full of grace and truth. We're, we're reminded that he's not just a child that's given, but a, a son who is born. He is the second person of the Trinity who's come from heaven to earth to provide salvation to all those who would trust in him as Savior and as Lord. You know, in John 
chapter 20, verse 31 on Wednesdays, we're in the Gospel of John, and the invitation of the entire Gospel of John is an invitation to believe that Jesus Christ, Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, who provides life eternal to anyone who will receive him. And in chapter 11, before Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, in verse 25, Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. And then he turned to Martha and he said, Martha, do you believe this? And Martha says, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who has come into the world. Unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. We see his humanity. We see his deity. Then we see his sovereignty. And upon... And upon his shoulder, and the government shall, will be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. So it tells us that uh, this Savior, this Messiah, he's going to bear the responsibilities of the government. He's going to bear the responsibilities of leadership. He's going to bear the responsibilities of the kingdom of God. How is it possible for one person to bear the government on their shoulders? There's no one like the Messiah. We're talking about the one who is to come, who is the king of kings <coughs> and the Lord of lords. He will bear the responsibilities of leadership, the government, and the kingdom on his shoulders. How in the world is that possible? We get to hear what he's called. Wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. Let's walk through those. The first one is he shall be called wonderful counselor. This Savior who's going to bring salvation that's described in the first five verses is a wonder of a counselor. That means that his wisdom of the one who is able to counsel is surpassing. It's marvelous. It's extraordinary. There is no one like our God. His counseling is a wonder. He's a wonder of a king and a wonder of a counselor. I met a number of counselors in my life, those who have gone to school. There's some people who come to me and say, hey, we want some biblical counseling. But there is no one who is described as a wonderful counselor like our God. Elsewhere in Scripture, it says, if anyone needs wisdom, go and ask him. He gives liberally. He's a wonderful counselor. And this wonderful counselor will bear the responsibilities on his shoulders of the government and of the kingdom. Wonderful counselor. Secondly, mighty God, not only is his wisdom surpassing, but his power is limitless. Did you know the Messiah, the Savior of the world, has limitless power? The same power that conquered sin, death, and Satan at the cross. And the same power who ratified the victory and raised Christ from the dead three days later is the same power that's available to you and I if we know Jesus as our personal Savior and our Lord. There is nothing our God cannot do. When you recognize he's a wonderful counselor with surpassing wisdom, when you recognize he's a mighty God with limitless power, there's nothing in his will that you cannot do. So you read his word, you put your hope in his promises, and you go out and you boldly proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ and watch what God does because he's a wonderful counselor and a mighty God. Thirdly, he is an everlasting father. Everlasting Father. 
not only is his wisdom surpassing and his power limitless, but his love is unending. When it refers to Jesus as the everlasting father, we're not talking about Jesus in relationship to the members of the Trinity here. We're talking about Jesus in relationship to time. He is the everlasting father. He is the origin of time. At the beginning of time, he was. At the end of time, he will be. He is the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. He is the everlasting father. And as the everlasting father, it reminds us of his love, his care, and his protection over those who belong to him. Jesus says in John, you know, those whom the father gives me, I will hold on to them and I will not let them Go. He is our everlasting Father. His love is unending. And then lastly, He is the Prince of Peace, meaning that His victory is sure. His victory is sure. When this tells us that Jesus is the Prince of Peace, it's, it's not talking about Jesus in regards to His first coming when He comes as a meek and gentle servant where Jesus has come to, uh, to come as a sacrificial lamb, but it's speaking of Jesus as the Prince of Peace who's coming back as a conquering king. He came the first time as a suffering servant. The second time, he's coming on the horse with a sword. And the reason he's the Prince of Peace is because he conquers all of his enemies. So in the end, there's no enemy that stands, only the kingdom of God as he consummates his kingdom. And therefore, he is the Prince of Peace. No more war, no more need for um, materials, uh, for weaponry, or for battle, or for war. Why? Because he's the prince of peace, and his kingdom will usher in this time during the reign of Christ. Wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. That's what he will be called. When's the last time you called on his name? Did you know his, his name reflects on his nature? I don't know about you, but I need him every moment of every day. I needed him this morning when I woke up and I was headed into church this morning. I needed to call on the one who is my wonderful counselor, my mighty God, my everlasting father, my prince of peace. Do you know him? Have you called upon him? Do you continue to call out to him? If you don't know Jesus as your Savior and Lord, the invitation is to come to him, to admit your need for him, to admit your, that he is the only answer to your problem of sin and to receive forgiveness of sins and everlasting life. And if you know him, to continue to cry out to him again and again and again. And then in verse 7, we read about the nature of his reign. He is the one who's going to reign on the throne of David. Jesus is the one who doesn't just fulfill the Abrahamic covenant of Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, but is also the one who fulfills the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 14, that upon the throne of David will come one who will, whose reign will be eternal. Well, let's go ahead and dig into the text and consider his reign. In verse 7, it says, of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. What's the nature of the reign of the Messiah and the Savior? The reign of the Messiah is everlasting. This reign will never come to an end. When peace comes, there's no more war. There's no more problem. There's no more pain. There's no more suffering. We get to see that, 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 that his reign is eternal. Secondly, his reign is a fulfillment of prophecy. 
upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice. I'd say the Davidic covenant is so important. We should probably go there. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 12. Let me read it to you. When your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seat after you who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. Immediately we're speaking of Solomon. Let's continue to read. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Did Solomon reign on the throne forever? Did his sons reign on the throne forever? No, the kingdom split in two after that. And you had the northern and the southern kingdom. And then we hear about the, the Assyrian exile and the Babylonian exile, 586 B.C. They returned to the land for a little bit. But when is all of this going to be fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus Christ during his reign? Verse 14, I will be his father and he shall be my son if he commits iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and the blows of the sons of men. But my mercy shall not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I removed before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever. Jesus is the Davidic king who will reign on the throne forever. He will fulfill the promises given to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Fulfilling the promise of land, seed, and blessing. He will fulfill the promises given to David according to the Davidic covenant that on this throne it will be eternal. So it's an everlasting reign. It is a prophetic reign. And then thirdly, it's a reign motivated by his love. At the end of verse 7, it tells us, from that time forward, even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. The motivation for Christ who will rule and reign on the everlasting throne of David is his love for you and me. And his reign and his passion will be the motivation as he rules and reigns forevermore. This morning, this is the Christmas story. It's a promise of salvation that's ultimately fulfilled in the promise and the announcement of a savior. Unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. Yeah, the government is going to be on his shoulders. He's going to bear the, the leadership and the responsibilities thereof. And the reason he can do that, because he's going to be called the wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father and the prince of peace. He's going to reign on the throne of David and it's going to be accomplished by the zeal of the Lord Church, what is our response? We have no other response but to rejoice. Let us rejoice in the salvation of our God. I want to invite you this morning, if, if you don't know Jesus as your Savior and Lord, the reason he was born in a manger, as we said earlier, was so that he could die on the cross. If you haven't started a personal relationship with him, and you know that there's something that separates you from God, it's a thing called sin, if you haven't realized that, but if you put your hope and your trust in Jesus, he'll forgive you. If you change your mind and change your direction, he'll lead you on the path to everlasting life. When you die, knowing we're not promised tomorrow, you can leave here today with the assurance that if something happens to you, you are going to be with God and his people forever if you simply believe in him. Confess him as your savior and Lord and receive forgiveness and everlasting 
life. Let us rejoice. Let us place our faith in him. And then uh, next, let us worship him as we rejoice in him. Worship Jesus as the wonderful counselor with wisdom that is surpassing. Worship him as the mighty God whose power is limitless. Worship him as the everlasting father whose love is unending. And worship him as the prince of peace whose victory is sure and we get to share in the victory that is won. When's the last time you called on him? This morning, whether you know him or not, you'd invite you to call on him. If you don't know him, trust in him. If you do know him, call on him today as well and express your love, your devotion to him. Can we pray? Father in heaven, we rejoice with heaven in the salvation of our God. We thank you for Jesus Christ, who is our Savior and our Lord, who is the fulfillment of all prophecies of old, including Isaiah chapter 9. We thank you, Lord, for Jesus this morning. If there's someone here today who doesn't know you, but who wants to take that step of faith and trust in you, who would receive the invitation to make this the day of their salvation. I pray that they can respond to the free gift offered to them in Jesus by saying this, Father, I recognize I need you. I need Jesus in my life. I've missed the mark. I've fallen short. I know the consequences of my sin is separation, not just in this life, but in the life to come. But although the wages of sin is death, that's the price. The gift of God is eternal life. I believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, who has come into the world. I make him my Savior, the one who will forgive me of my sins. I make him my Lord, the one I will follow all the days of my life into eternity. Father, I pray for every single person in this room right here, right now, that they can call out to their wonderful counselor, their mighty God, their everlasting Father, and their Prince of Peace, and enjoy the blessing of being in relationship with Christ. Father, we thank you for these things. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.